I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Brent Legg, Executive Vice President of Government Affairs for Connected Nation. Recently, Connected Nation announced that it applied for funding through the NTIA's Middle Mile Grant Program to launch 125 new carrier-neutral internet exchange points, or IXPs, across the U.S. Brent and I talk about that plan in detail, including why the U.S. needs more internet exchange points in order to close the digital divide, and how Connected Nation is proceeding while it awaits word on potential grant funding. Okay, Brent, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Nicole. It is my pleasure. I'm excited to talk with you today. Um, I figure before we get into the details of the um, IXP partnership that I asked you to come here and talk to us a bit more in detail about, um, I was wondering if you could just introduce yourself and, and your role at Connected Nation. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Brent Legg. I'm the Executive Vice President of Government Affairs at Connected Nation. Uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, actually celebrating 22 years of working in the broadband space uh, this year. And uh, we're really excited to be embarking on this new initiative to develop carrier neutral internet exchange points across the U.S. Yeah, so this is a pretty exciting announcement. Um, right now, you and I are talking, it's like late February, I would think it was late January when Connected Nation announced a partnership with Hunter Newbie to construct and operate at least 125 new carrier neutral internet exchange points, or IXPs, as we'll probably refer to them in the US. So just to start off sort of high level, tell us a bit more about this partnership, and why establishing IXPs is an important part of addressing the digital divide. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we as an organization, uh, as I mentioned, have been working on broadband uh, issues now for 22 years, but it was only about five or six years ago uh, when we undertook a project in Iowa that we really started to understand uh, the issues surrounding network interconnection and the importance of bringing facilities that facilitate uh, network interconnection on a carrier neutral basis to smaller communities uh, across the country. Um, we focused most uh, of our time throughout our history on the development of last mile broadband solutions to homes and businesses. And that's incredibly important. And it's where most of our federal funding goes these days to bring access to those last mile connections. Um, but there are other important areas of the broadband ecosystem that need to be addressed too, and carrier neutral IXPs are a huge part of that. Uh, so um, anyway, we we started in Iowa back in 2018, facilitating a project to, with the goal of reducing um, uh, costs and increasing bandwidth for school districts in the eastern part of the state, and ultimately we realized that. We couldn't do that without the creation of a neutral aggregation point um, that could serve uh, the school districts in that region. And uh, that's how we met uh, Hunter Newby. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. Uh, we've uh, <laughs> formed this partnership because he's truly one of the pioneers in this space, um, in the space of network interconnection over the last 20 years in the U.S. So, okay, so you started off um, in Iowa, and so 
tell me a bit more about the types of regions and environments that you envision um, needing these new IXPs. Uh, there are about uh, there are about fifty seven major metropolitan markets in the U.S. Uh, where network interconnection occurs on a carrier neutral basis, and those are in major cities like uh, New York, uh, Washington D.C., uh, Ashburn, Virginia area, Atlanta, uh, Chicago, Dallas, uh, Seattle. Um, but there are actually fourteen states that do not have a carrier neutral IXP facility at all, meaning that all of the networks uh, operating in those states from local ISPs to education and research networks to mobile network operators, uh, transport network operators, cloud and content, um, essentially all of those networks are backhauling traffic to a major metro area that could be uh, several hundred miles away in order to exchange that traffic with other networks. And it creates a scenario where, you know, um, applications and services are being developed by Silicon Valley, you know, for ultra high bandwidth, ultra low latency uh, connectivity. And yet rural America in many places um, simply doesn't have that type of quality internet access um, because of this scenario of essentially traffic being backhauled hundreds of miles away to the nearest internet exchange point for it to be exchanged with other networks. And that's the problem that we're trying to solve. So as we look at sort of the first tier of where we go, we're really looking at regional hub cities uh, within states, uh, states that may have a either a, a flagship state university or a regional public university within the state uh, as an anchor. Uh, and we're, we're, so we're starting there. In, in population centers that are anywhere between, you know, 20,000 people and 100,000 people. Uh, in some cases, though, we're actually going into markets that have been far too long overlooked. Um, so not just smaller cities, but even larger cities. Uh, I live in, in the community of Lexington, Kentucky. We have about uh, 300,000 people in Lexington proper with another 300,000 people in the bedroom communities surrounding Lexington. So over a half a million people. And yet Lexington has no carrier neutral IXP at all. Uh, and actually uh, the city of Louisville does not either. Uh, there's an extended IX uh, out of Indianapolis into a um, into a carrier facility in Louisville, uh, and Louisville's uh, you know an even larger city. So we're, we really did a pretty exhaustive um, look at where communities are lacking um, these types of facilities, and um, uh, and we've added them to our target list uh, for where we need to go. So the community profiles really range from you know, around 20,000 people all the way up to nearly a million in some communities that have been underserved for a long time. Okay, cool. So when you made this announcement in late January, you also mentioned, well, Connected Nation mentioned um, that uh, you've applied for a middle mile grant through the NTIA. So a couple of questions um, on that. Uh, one, what would that grant uh, enable you all to do? And two, um, what did the announcement kick off uh is, is there anything you're able to do in the meantime um, before knowing if you get that grant or not? 
Well, we're really fortunate that uh, policymakers in Washington have started to pay attention to this issue. Uh, and so when the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act was being written, uh, there were a few U.S. senators, uh, namely Senator Blackburn from Tennessee and Senator Schatz from Hawaii, um, were working on on issues pertaining to middle mile connectivity. And um, they had actually been working on a bill called the Internet Exchange Act uh, that uh, had components of it that were ultimately rolled into the infrastructure bill. So the infrastructure bill under the middle mile grant uh, portion uh, actually included uh, carrier neutral internet exchange facilities and carrier neutral submarine cable landing stations as grant eligible for the first time that we know of. Um, so much of uh, you know, federal policy has been focused on extending last mile access to homes and businesses, which as we said earlier is uh, totally justifiable. Uh, but at the same time, um, there are aspects of the country's middle mile infrastructure landscape that need to be enhanced too. And it's not just transport fiber to these communities. It's also things like IXPs. Um, and so we had the opportunity in September to apply for our first grant uh, to build five carrier neutral IXPs uh, in the cities of Lexington, where I reside, uh, and as well as Starkville, Mississippi, the home of Mississippi State University, uh, Wichita, Kansas, the home of Wichita State University, um, uh, Oklahoma State University in Stillwater, um, and in the uh, city of Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico. And in all five of those uh, locations, we were able to partner either with the university or the city uh, to uh, where they donated uh, two acres of land under a 40-year ground lease to establish these IXPs on um, property that was st strategically advantageous. So in the case of the universities, on their research and technology parks that they're looking to develop. And that's perfect for, um, you know, planting a seed uh, uh, in, in the interconnection space in that community because these universities have a lot of eyeball traffic that can drive, uh, tra you know, uh, um, cloud and content traffic to and through these facilities and will really go a long way to helping them get off the ground uh, much more quickly than they would otherwise. So um, we're anxiously awaiting uh, NTIA's uh, review of that grant uh, application, and uh, we're very hopeful that, uh, that we'll receive a, a positive response uh, here in the next couple of months or so. Yeah, uh, good luck, first of all. Um, I, I also wonder the process of submitting a grant application. You know, you mentioned you you submitted in September. Um, have you had any word yet, or are you just still waiting to get any kind of questions, or do you not even expect questions? Do they, you just expect a response? Like, how does this go once you submit your application? Well, we've, we've heard through the grapevine, and this is, you know, sometimes second and third hand information, but that NTIA is now starting to ask uh, questions under their programmatic review process. Um, we're aware of, of at least one other application that has uh, already received some questions, uh, and the applicant is in the process of responding to those. And it's our understanding that questions are going to be asked on a rolling basis, um, and that award announcements will happen over the next six months or so. So we may not even learn anything until, you know, the late summer, early fall months. Um, they did come to us in October and asked for uh, a couple of minor 
uh, tweaks to be made to to the application. Um, uh, but we haven't heard anything since then. So we're on pins and needles, as you might imagine. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine that this funding is kind of crucial to what you're trying to do, or or do you have another way? <laughs> well, I think one of the reasons why um, many of these areas don't have these types of facilities is because the capital construction cost is high. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the private equity world um, really likes to invest in facilities that have a proven track record. And so uh, it's been difficult to come up with the capital construction cost to to build the facility. I think once the facility is operational, they're self-sustaining. But covering that cost uh, up front for the construction is is somewhat difficult. So, and, and I think that's why there has been a market failure, frankly, uh, why many of these cities, even like Lexington, Kentucky, is lacking uh, in these types of facilities because of uh, that lack of, of private investment. Um, the grants are pretty essential to getting these things off the ground in most of the communities. Um, but uh, we will see what happens. Uh, okay. The next round of funding, of course, is the much larger BEAD program. And uh, uh, Internet Exchange Facility is a defined term under the Bead NOFO, so we're really uh, hopeful that uh, that that could be a pathway uh, to getting some of these other facilities funded as well. Okay, great. Because yeah, as you mentioned, the Bead is a, a much larger uh, pile of money. Uh, the Middle Mile program is about one billion dollars, and I think it got about five billion dollars worth of applications. Um, so yeah, some of that is going to need to spill over <laughs> into Bead, I think. Um, beyond funding, do you have any other? Are there any other um, barriers to uh, launching IXPs in certain regions? Do you get? Uh, any pushback from carriers? Are, are there are there policy issues that you bump up against? Well, I think um, you know, in many ways, these facilities exist to help network operators of all types. Uh, some network operators um, get very comfortable in their in their current environment. Right? They mm-hmm. they like things as they are. And uh, some may perceive, you know, the creation of a, of a venue where multiple networks can interconnect and exchange traffic or where, you know, new uh, network operators, IB transit providers could come in and offer services at a, at a discounted rate. Um, some, some network operators might see that as a threat, but I think, you know, looking back on Hunter's experience in this area where he has established new facilities, um, there's always this period of skepticism and do you really mean that this is going to really improve access and, and, and lower costs and reduce latency for everyone? And there's all, there are skeptics, but uh, eventually uh, everyone comes on board and sees the benefit and, and ultimately becomes a defender of the facility and the value that it provides in a community. So there are some um, areas of the country where we've received a little bit of pushback uh, or skepticism that it's really needed. One one of the one of the areas of pushback is like, well, you know, the the round trip latency, uh, you know, time between, you know, say Wichita, Kansas, and Kansas City is not that long. You know, um, so do we really need to build a facility in Wichita if Kansas City is a couple of mi- couple hundred miles away? And and the answer to that question is well yes because the internet is is constantly evolving and latency dependent applications 
are increasingly being developed, right? So we don't want to mm-hmm. see a scenario in 10 years after the government has spent tens of billions of dollars on new broadband infrastructure and realize that, you know, oh my goodness, even a city the size of Wichita, Kansas is, uh, is, is experiencing a second rate internet experience because they're not near the carrier hotel in Kansas city, Missouri. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, Evo Ivanov from, uh, uh, the largest, uh, D, uh, um, uh, IX platform in the world, a company called DKIX, um, it likes to talk about how, you know, latency actually needs to be reduced to the point that it's quicker than the blink of an eye, quicker than the brain can process. Um, because these real time uh, experiences, augmented reality, virtual reality, are all going to be highly latency dependent applications. And in order to have that real time experience, it's got to happen uh, at, at a latency level that is much faster than what is available in communities like Wichita today. So in, in reality, what we're trying to do is not just prepare for the current needs, but prepare for the needs of the future and make sure that the money that's being spent by the federal government on broadband is not wasted. And we find our time, you know, in 10 or so years uh, where these communities are still experiencing another aspect of the digital divide. And that it, that part of the digital divide that's that's really latency uh, dependent, right, right, um, and and certainly you know we keep describing what we're spending this money on as future proof, and uh, one way to help future proof that would would be to do what you're talking about here. Um, you mention uh, partnering with universities. Um, are are there other types of ideal partners that would help bring some of this to life, or is it really like? you need to partner with um, universities and research organizations? Well, universities are, are certainly helpful for some of the reasons that I mentioned earlier. They already have, you know, captive eyeball traffic, right, that, that mm-hmm. is immediately of interest to the cloud and content companies uh, that, you know, need to co-locate in these um, IXPs. Uh, but there are other, you know, significant users, um, and, and I'm, I'm talking about, you know, there are national security and defense department uh, reasons why, um, uh, you know, these types of facilities need to be included. Um, uh, one of the reasons why we're pursuing a, a site in, in the city of Albuquerque uh, is that the, uh, the Air Force Base leadership there at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque uh, essentially a couple of years ago came to the city and said, you know, we're really concerned that we're single threaded right now through the city's existing carrier hotel. And at the time that carrier hotel was, um, was experiencing some financial and other challenges and, and the air force was really concerned that they would be single threaded through that one facility. So that that's when the city of Albuquerque began uh, a process for, you know, creating a new carrier hotel, a new IXP on the Albuquerque airport property immediately adjacent to the Air Force Base so that um, the Air Force itself could have route diversity uh, from their facility uh, out to out to the Internet. And, and I think that's true not just uh, with regard to Kirtland and Albuquerque, but many other um, uh, defense uh, uh, installations uh, across the U.S., uh, so working with uh, the Department of Defense, uh, working with um, um, 
essentially the state research and education networks um, are also really, really helpful in determining where these facilities should go uh, and, and making sure that they're successful once they're developed. Okay, cool. Um, uh, one final question for you. Um, I'll make it a double then. Um, you mentioned earlier that there was a piece of legislation uh, about IXPs that eventually turned into the Middle Mile Program or helped inform the Middle Mile Program in, in the Infrastructure Act. And I guess the uh, part of the bead, uh rule that focuses on these pro these um, exchange networks. Um, do you still feel like there is a need for uh, its its own piece of legislation um, post bead post infra infrastructure law um, to address how we fund and maintain um, IXPs in the future? Um, and my my sort of add on question for that to that for you is uh, what are you going to be doing now besides twiddling your thumbs to um, before the NTIA issues its uh, its awards on this? Both really good questions. So the <laughs> the answer to your to your first question is um, yes. I I think ultimately um, some focused legislation on this topic is is going to be necessary. Uh, to address the areas where there has been a market failure. Um, as you can imagine, the state broadband offices are being constantly bombarded by uh, people, um, you know, wanting to uh, apply for a grant to build last mile service here or there. And I think a lot of the, you know, the, there's still a lot of education to be done on this subject. Um, most public policy in this country has has really focused on last mile build out. And so that's what's got the attention of most state broadband offices. Uh, so there's a there's a learning curve still to address that, you know, in every conversation we have, we have to talk about what IXPs are and why they're important and why there has been a market failure and who the appropriate partners are and where these things should go. And so there's a lot of work left to be done. So um, I, I honestly think that you know, some states are going to be out in front on this issue and some states are, are not. And so there are still going to be facilities that are needed that don't get built under a program even as large as BEAD. So, yes, I think uh, it would be great if those members of Congress uh, were to pick up that legislation from a couple of Congresses ago and uh, take a look at it, see how it could be improved, and then... Um, and see uh, the bill filed again. Um, as I mentioned, there are several leaders in Congress, including Senators Blackburn and Schatz on this issue, um, as well as, uh, you know, Billy Long from Missouri has also uh, done a lot of work on this issue. So I'd be um, uh, neglectful if I didn't mention that. And then um, I, there were aspects of that original legislation that did not make it into the infrastructure law that would have been useful, right? So. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, I'm hopeful that that Congress will uh, will address this again because I think the problem is going to be bigger than the bead program will be practically able to solve. And then, the answer to your second question is, what are we doing right now? Well, as I mentioned, there's a lot of uh, a lot of education that needs to be done on this subject. Uh, so we're interfacing with state broadband offices. We're interfacing with the even the trade associations that represent some of the uh, network operators, last mile ISPs in, in states. Um, we're certainly interfacing with public universities um, that may have an interest in locating one of these facilities on their campuses. 
uh, we're interfacing with uh, with uh, defense and homeland security agencies who, you know, as we mentioned earlier, have a need for these facilities in certain places. Um, and we're, we're interfacing with uh, the cloud and content networks, uh, ultimately, that are building, uh, you know, the next generation of the Internet and, and planning that today. Uh, so where do they need to go to establish a physical presence beyond the current, you know, 57 metro markets that have IXPs today? So that's a that's a big universe of people that uh, that really need to be engaged on this topic. And that's what we're pursuing right now. All right. Well, it sounds like you have plenty to do uh, besides sit here and talk to me about it. But I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and and share a bit more about this project. And good luck. We'll be keeping an eye out to see when the NTIA says that you won that grant. I, I feel good about it. Well, thank you very much, Nicole. And I hope that uh, any community leaders that are out there that are interested in this topic, uh, take a look at our website, connectednation.org slash IXP. Um, the list of our 125 target locations is listed on that page. And if your community isn't on the list, we'd still love to talk to you. So please reach out and we'll, uh, we'll uh, follow up. Fantastic. We'll make sure to include a link to that in our show notes. Thanks again, Brent talk to you again soon. Thank you, Nicole. Have a good day. You too. Thank you again, Brent, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landriau, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.